Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Abigail, I'm sorry, baby. Bad Pastor Bob. I said no. I'm so sorry. I broke her heart. I feel so bad. I'm sorry, baby. <laughs> Last week in our sermon, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And um, I've been trying to figure out what's next. And what's next, we're going to put this right here, sweetie. Okay. Thank you. You can go ahead and sit down, honey. Okay, put it over there on that side, please. Good job. Good job. Thank you. All right. Good job. That's okay. But as I've been reading through this... Um, I was like, God, do I stay in chapter 9? Do I go on to chapter 10? Do I skip over chapter 10 and go to 11? And really and truly, as I was just meditating and reading, um, there were a few things that jumped out at me. And so that's what I want to talk to us about this morning. We're not going to take the time this morning to read all of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. There's just not time. Um, But one of the things I do want to point out... um, The Bible, as it was translated from the original languages to our languages, uh, they try to stay as close as they can to the original. And if you have your Bible, open it up and look at chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Isaiah. And I just want to talk for just a second about the actual formatting and how they process these words. And so if you'll look at chapter 9, verse 1. Just look at it. Don't read the words. Just just look at it. How does it appear on the page? Do you notice that in my case, there's a formatting called justification. And what that means is, is that the margins are perfectly straight and the words are all lined up so that there's a line along each margin And uh, they've actually adjusted the spacing of the words to make that happen. That's called justification and or justified. And the reason that it's done that way is because this is straight prose. Okay, prose is when you just write something out, just regular sentences, just regular writing like a book. But then notice verses two all the way through to ten, eleven. Okay, so chapter 9, verse 2, and then go all the way through to chapter 10, verse 11, and you notice that the formatting is different. It's not prose. It's done as a poem or a song. Okay, so this, this, the way that it appears on the page helps us to understand that this was a song or a poem or a prophetic utterance that was that was done specifically by Isaiah. And then if you look at chapter 10, verse 12, it goes back to prose again, just for that one verse. And then 13, all the way through to the end of chapter 10, verse 34, is the poetry again, and it actually goes all the way to verse 9 of chapter 11. And so the thing that's really frustrating when you're trying to exegete scripture, what exegete means looking at it and going, okay, what does this mean? How does, how does this, how does it, how do you get something 
out of this that's applicable to my life. And when you're looking at this, the way we've divided up the Bible is for our convenience, okay? The Bible has been divided by chapters and verses, not because that's how the original writers did it. They just wrote. But we have, the scholars, have divided the Bible into chapters and verses so that the priest or the preacher can stand in the pulpit and say, okay, everybody open up the Bible and turn to... Okay, because if I said to you, turn to page 1723, some of you be in John and some of you be in Isaiah and some of you be in Psalms because the different books that you're carrying, we're not all holding exactly the same version. But we can at least say, go to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 and we can all get there. So there's some purpose in dividing the scriptures up that way, it makes it easy to follow, easy to identify things, easy for us to all commonly see and look at the same passage. However, that's an artificial breakdown of how the Word of God was originally written. And so this formatting, as you look at the page and see how the words are formatted on the page, that gives you a little bit of an understanding of how the thing was originally written. And, the, and again, if you go from chapter 9, verse 1, or verse 2, all the way through to chapter 11, verse 7, with the exception of one verse, chapter 10, verse 12, it's all this poetry, this song. So then it's like, okay, how in the world do I know what part is this and what part is this thought and what part is this thought or is it all one big long thought? And that's another division that's done by Bible scholars and it's called what is, looking, at, looking for or identifying what's known as the pericope. Now, pericope is an interesting word that looks like the word periscope. Okay, you know what a periscope is, right? How do you spell Periscope. P-E-R-I-S-C-O-P-E, periscope. Take the S out, and you now have pericope. Okay? So the word pericope is spelled just like periscope without the S. Okay? And pericope means a unit of thought. So as you're looking at the Bible... You're looking for the unit of thought, not the verses and the chapters. That's how we've divided it up just for our convenience. But when we're trying to get the, the meaning of what's going on with something, we're looking for the pericopes, the units of thought. So now the scholars of some Bibles, the translators of some Bibles, have made it easy. I happen to be using right now the New International Version Bible. Okay, So in the New International Version Bible, you'll notice, if I were to come around and show you, the pericopes are divided in the New International Bible by a small heading, okay? So in the New International Bible, chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 7, that pericope in the New International Bible is titled, To Us a Child is Born. Then it moves on to another pericope. So chapter 9, verse 8, the pericope there goes all the way through until chapter 10, verse 4. And that one is titled, The Lord's Anger Against Israel. 
And then chapter 10, verse 5 says God's judgment on Assyria. And it goes all the way through until chapter 10, verse 19. And then it goes the remnant of Israel. And that goes all the way through to the end of chapter 10. So you see, there's 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 prose and poetry. There's pericopes. Oh, look, I did alliteration. Three P's. Prose, poetry and pericope. I'm a pro, I'm an, I'm an accomplished speecher, preacher today. I've used three alliterated words. We can now go home. Okay? Now, having said all of that, as I studied and looked at and meditated on the pericopes, okay, of this section, I was like, well, God, we already talked about the pericope dealing with unto us a child is born. We did that last week. So should I move on to the next pericope, the Lord's anger against Israel? Mm, no, not really. What about the next pericope, which was, what was it? God's judgment on Assyria? Mm, no, there's not a whole lot of helpful stuff there. Well, should I skip over all of that and go to the pericope talking about the branch from Jesse chapter 11, verse 1? No, God said, hold that off for next week. So I'm like, okay, so now I've, I've identified it somewhere between John, I mean, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8, that pericope, all the way through to the end of chapter 10. So what am I looking at? And the Lord said, well, just look at it, Bob. Look at it. What is going on here? What is God speaking through Isaiah saying to the people of Israel? Same thing he says every time I read this, God. The nations of Assyria are going to come and squash Israel, and then they're going to come and squash Judah, and then they're going to come and squash Jerusalem, and there has to be a holy remnant that keeps their eyes focused on God. Yep, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, but I can't say that every week, God. People are going to get bored and they're going to stop coming. Well, this is what, I, this is what my word says, so this is what you're supposed to talk about. Well, God, this is boring. I can't do that. Well, it's not boring, Bob. It's just you don't want to talk about it. But then I found something cool that I could talk about. But I think it was something that God, the Holy Spirit, pointed out as I was reading and studying and meditating on this. Look at verse, chapter 10, verse 13, 14, 15, eh, maybe all the way through till 19. But let's just start out there. Chapter 10. Verses 12 to 13. When the Lord had finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures like a mighty one. I subdued their kings. As one reaches into the nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As men gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. And then God says, does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Or the saw boast against him who uses it? As if a rod were to wield him who lifted it up? Or a club brandish him who is not the wood? 
Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. Under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. The light of Israel will become a fire, their holy one a flame. In a single day, it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. And the splendor of his forests and fertile fields will be completely destroyed as when a sick man wastes away. And the remaining trees of the forest will be so few that a child could write them down. And what I saw there was that, you see, God is saying to the nation of Israel, I'm going to use Assyria to bring about my purposes. My purposes are that you people need some discipline. Because you people have not been following the ways that you were taught to follow. You have not put me first. You have raised up yourselves in ways of haughtiness and ways of disobedience. And you were oppressing my poor and you were oppressing my widows. And I care deeply for them. And I'm going to make you pay as a result. And there is going to be a holy remnant who's keeping their eyes focused on me. But I'm using the king of Assyria to come against you, Israel. To come against you, Judah. To come against you, Jerusalem. And they're going to do my bidding. And it says, however, their king's got his attitude problem. And this king's going to learn a thing or two from me. Because he is the axe I'm holding to chop. He is the saw that I'm using to cut. This king who thinks he's all that in a bag of chips is going to find out that all he is is a tool in my hand. I am the Lord Almighty. And I will bring about my purposes through whomever I choose. And he's going to learn that. Because he thinks he's all strength and power and great. And I'm going to show him how powerful and strength and great he is. And the reality is, he's going to be knocked down to his knees. And there's a couple things God is saying in that. Number one, he's saying, I'm God, you're not. I'm God, you're not. Doesn't matter. It's still me that's in charge. Number two, he's saying... Do not feel overwhelmed as your world seems to be crashing down, folks. Don't lose heart. Stay the one, stay being one of those who are part of the holy remnant who keep your eyes focused on me. Don't look around you. Don't keep your eyes focused on the one who seems to be speaking words that seem real and talking trash about how great that person is and how wonderful they are and how glorious they are and how they're taking over the world. Understand that I am sovereign and they are only doing it because I'm allowing it. And see, there's truth in there for me as I meditate on that. Because see, in my world today, it's getting scary. In my, I was listening to the radio this week and I heard somebody say in an interview with some expert from some university somewhere who's an expert on Middle East, blah, blah, blah. And he said, so is it your opinion that, that having terror in our streets all around the world is just going to be the new normal? And the person said, well, yes, I, I do think that that's probably true. I think this is just something we're going to have to get used to and just understand that this is the way of the world and this is the way it's going to be. And we just have to keep our eyes aware of the fact that there's going to be terror just about in every street corner in the coming days. And that's just the way it is. And I was like, but God, ah. and then I, and then the Lord was like, eh, only if I say it's okay. 
Only if I say it's okay. You keep your eyes focused on me, Bob. You do not worry about what the world is saying and the wisdom of the world. If I allow it, I have a purpose for allowing it. And if I don't, and if I see that it doesn't serve my purposes, I can stop it. And then I was like, but where is my part coming into this? Because honestly, like I tried to share with the kids, I'm in this relationship with God, right? I'm in this relationship with God. And so if I'm in a relationship with God, then what's my part in this relationship? Is it that I'm supposed to dutifully read the Bible three times a week and I'm supposed to make sure that I pray every single day and I do... What am I supposed to do in this relationship? And the thing that I see in this is that I'm supposed to be living my life in such a way that the people of this earth are turned to God. That's what I'm supposed to be doing in this relationship. I'm supposed to be living my life in such a way that I am trying to understand who Jesus is and how Jesus reacts and relates to people around him. And then I'm supposed to emulate that. I'm supposed to become a Christian. And a Christian means a little Christ. That was a derogatory term in the book of Acts. The term Christian was like, oh, look at those little Christs, those Christians. That's exactly, who do they think they are so holy? And did you know that the church that is now known as the United Methodist Church, which is where our roots come from, was founded by John Wesley and his brother Charles? You know where the term came from, Methodist? Because they had certain methods that they had for how you live a holy life. And so those Methodists are over there being holy in their little closet. Seriously, that's where the term Methodist came from. They got their methods for being holy. You think it's funny, but that's exactly the kind of stuff that they went through when they were trying to live holy and pleasing lives before God and before the world. Now, I'm not saying that Wesley was right or wrong. I'm saying that he was doing what he felt God asked him to do and the world didn't understand it and they started making fun. My situation for me is God has called me into relationship. From the time I was 16 years old, he asked me if I would be in relationship with him and I said yes. He asked me to be his best friend, and I said yes. He wants me to love him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength, and I have said yes. How do I do that, God? How do I live that out, God? What is it that you're asking of me, God? Well, first, Bob, I want you to recognize that I'm the sovereign of the universe. I created it, and in a blink, I can make it all go away. And I allow things for my purposes, and you don't have to understand it. You just have to know that I'm in charge. Yes, sir, I can accept that and I can understand that and I can trust you. So when things aren't going your way, Bob, in our relationship, when you think that I'm not doing what I should be doing, you have the freedom to say to me, hey, I don't think you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I have the freedom to tell you to sit down, shut up and play with your crayons. And that's what I need to do is sit down, shut up and play with my crayons. And trust that my daddy's got it all in control. You know, when we first moved here, the church had this lovely 15-passenger white van with 273 million miles on the engine. (coughs) And the original shocks and struts. And um, three times I was driving that van during the early years of our ministry here. And three times we hit black ice. Separate incidents. And I did 360s and 720s. And uh, the youth, literally, one of the youth in our, of our church, he's now 28 years old. But he literally said to some other youth in a youth group meeting, if you ever hear Pastor Bob yell Jesus while he's driving, hold on. 
Because honestly, when things get bad, that's the first thing that I do. Jesus! I have a friend who's a, who, she served as a missionary in the Philippines for many, many years. Her husband then got, went on to be the district superintendent in New Zealand. And then he went on to be the district superintendent in Florida. Then he went on to be the district superintendent in Arizona. And then he said, I'm done being a district superintendent. He just went in to be a pastor. And now they're finally re- retired. It's been 40 plus years of service. But they've been my friends for all of these years. And she told me years and years and years ago when we were living in the Philippines, she said, you know, my husband got mad at me when I was giving birth to our children because I was taking God's name in vain. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I was screaming Jesus throughout the pregnancy, throughout the delivery. And he thought I was cussing God. And she said, I wasn't. I was crying out to him. It hurt so bad. But he didn't understand. He thought I was being sacrilegious and, and irreverent to God by screaming his name. But he was my only hope at that moment. And that's what I was doing. I was holding on for dear life and screaming out for my only help. Jesus! And see, that's the kind of relationship I want to have with God. I want to know, number one, that he is the sovereign, that he is the king, that he's the Lord Jehovah, that he is Jehovah Sabaoth, the one who commands all of heaven's armies, so that in a moment notice, all I have to do is scream, Help me! And instantly the power is available to take care of whatever the need is. That's the kind of friend I want. That's the relationship I want. And I believe that that's what God was saying here in chapter 10 of Isaiah is, I got this. It doesn't matter how bad it looks. It doesn't matter how bleak it is. It just You plod through your day to day. Wherever I give to you to do, you do with all of your heart, with all of your strength, and you do the best you can for me. And trust me, I got everything else. Now, sometimes he lets us wallow in our stupidity. Okay? If I pray about something and he says no and I do it anyway, well, it's not going to happen that I could say, oh God, forgive me and help me now. He's like, oh hell, I forgive you, but you can deal with it yourself. Now, I'll give you a for instance out of my life. There are children here, so I have to talk kind of cryptically so that the children don't get it, okay? Pastor Bob inhaled. (laughs) Y'all understand what I'm saying? Pastor Bob inhaled three times in his life. Okay? The third time he inhaled, he was in rebellion against God. And all of a sudden, it was a very powerful inhale. It was laced with stuff that it wasn't supposed to be laced with. And Pastor Bob heard the laughter of Satan. And I began to scream and cry out to my best friend, Take this away. Stop this. And my best friend said to me, You inhaled. I'll be here through you with it through. I'll be here through it with you. But you inhaled. Don't ask me to miraculously take away the effects of your choice. But I'll never leave you. I'll be here with you. Think about that. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You are mine and I desire a relationship with you. But I can't save you from stupid. It's true. So if I'm in this relationship with this God of all gods who has all ability to make 
kings do his bidding, what does it look like for my day-to-day relationship? How do I get to know this God and do what pleases I mean, because like, if you have a best friend, what's their favorite color? You don't have to say it out loud, but think about it. If you have a best friend, someone that you know and have known forever, what is their favorite food? What do they enjoy most? Just being quiet when there, nothing else is going on. What is it that brings joy to them? See, if you know that person that well, you can bring joy by doing or bringing that to them. If someone's favorite food is ice cream and their favorite color is pink, then you can do a double blessing. Because you can give them strawberry ice cream, not for Mary, because she gets choked up on strawberries. But you can give them strawberry ice cream, and they get pink and ice cream, and you've blessed them. So if I wanted to bless my best friend, God, how? If I want to be in relationship with him, that means I give as well as receive. So how do I know how to bless God? What can I know about God's character that will bring joy to his heart? And this is what the Lord whispered to me or showed me. And this is the one that was just bouncing off the page for me this morning, this last night when I was just struggling, going, what do you want me to say to your people? He showed me verse chapter 10, verses one and two. Chapter 10, verses one and two. And two, woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. If God pronounces a woe on something... That's pretty bad. If God says, woe to them. Remember in the, in the New Testament, Jesus said, I pity the fool who harms one of my children. It would be better for them if they'd never been born. Because what's going to happen to them? It's going to be like a millstone being tied around their neck and being thrown into the depths of the sea. That's how bad this is. And that's what God is saying here. Woe to the people who make unjust laws. Woe to the people who issue oppressive decrees. Woe to the people who deprive the poor of their rights. Woe to the people who withhold justice from the oppressed. Woe to the people who make widows their prey. Woe to the people who rob the fatherless. You see, Jesus, and it's up on the screen for you. James chapter 1 verse 27. God finds religion that is faultless is this. Looking after widows and orphans. And it continues on to say, and to keep oneself from being stained by or polluted by the world. Okay? So there's twofold thing in this thing of faultless religion that God has in his heart and in his mind. What he sees as perfect religion is, number one, no longer sinning and getting rid of the stains. Now, he does all that for us, and as long as we don't go back into sin then we won't have to live or fear that displeasure of God. Because if we're not living sinfully, the stains have already been removed. And as long as we keep ourselves from being stained by the world, by getting involved with bad stuff again, we never have to worry about that. But there's the other part of this, James chapter 127, and that's why I left that on the screen. Pure and faultless religion is this. You have a heart of compassion for those who can't do for themselves. 
The ones who need it the most are the ones that God cares for the most and provides for the most. Look at Psalm 68. We read that first thing this morning when we started our service. Psalm 68, verse 5. It says, God in his holy dwelling is a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. And if I, and in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 21, I think it is. Hold on just a second. Let me, uh, I have to open up in my other Bible here. Jeremiah 21.11 says, And to the house of the king of Judah say, Hear the word of the Lord. That wasn't the one. Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. Going on. O house of David, thus says the Lord, Execute justice in the morning. Deliver from the hand of the oppressed him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. You who say, who shall come down against us and who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kinder of fire. And it says, being, delivering, execute justice and deliver from the hand of the oppressor, him who is being robbed. You see, there's, there's a friend of mine who, who uh, runs one of the local uh, shelters downtown. And every time she gets, I get an email from her, the end of her email says, and I can't ever quote it. I, I looked it up this morning and I forgot to mark it down. Live justly. Oh, I can't. Thank you. Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. And that's her. It's Micah. Yeah, thank you. Micah 6.8. It's seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. Okay? I was a Christian in 1978. That's when I became a Christian. I didn't go to my master's classes until about four years ago. And it was in my master's classes about four years ago. So 1978 to 2010. So we're talking 42 years and or 32 years. And um, in that in that class, I learned that God demands of me, if I'm going to be a Christian, a little Christ, that I seek to do justice and I show mercy. And I literally wrote in one of my papers to the professor and to the class, I never saw that as a spiritual responsibility on the part of a Christian. I mean, I knew it was important to do that kind of stuff. But I've always tried to focus on keeping myself clean, avoiding sin, living a holy and pure life before God and the world. That's what I've done for 30 plus years. But the reality is, if that's all I've done... I've missed the boat. Because it's not just keeping myself free from sin. It's not just living clean and holy and pure and righteous life. Because if all that is, all I'm doing is getting a get out of jail free card. I had a friend in high school whose mom said, yeah, that's your fire escape. You're just worried about not going to hell, so you're keeping yourself holy and pure. But what are you doing for God, for heaven's sakes? And honestly, 30 plus years of living holy and righteous lives and all of a sudden insight comes to me, love justice. 
seek mercy or whatever it is. Seek justice, love mercy, whatever it is. Pure and faultless religion is to look after the helpless. And you know, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting talking at lunch at a Lenten... Actually, it was... Maybe it was last week. I don't remember. Anyway, I was sitting and talking with lunch with Pastor Scott Fisher of the uh, uh, of St. Matthew's Episcopal Church downtown. And we were, we were talking at a table with a group of us, but he was sitting there next to me and we were talking. And I said, somebody asked me about the Church of the Nazarene. I said, well, the, the really cool thing about our church is that the founder of the Church of the Nazarene, Phineas F. Brzee, his whole mission, his whole focus was to go and minister to the poor in the inner city of Los Angeles. That was his heart. That was his calling. That's what he wanted to do. And his bishop said, under my orders, you do what I tell you to do. And I have never once told you to go to the inner city of Los Angeles and do any kind of a ministry, period. You minister where I tell you to do. And he said, but this is what God is calling you to do. And the bishop said, I told you, I set your assignment. And Phineas F. Rizzi literally prayerfully, but literally took his ordination papers with the, with the church he was part of and walked to his bishop's office and said, I no longer work for you. And he went and did what God was calling him to do. And I've been proud to be able to say, my heritage, the Nazarene church that I serve in, the focus was originally to serve the poor. And it was like God said to me, yeah, and it took you 30 years to get it. Because you'd never been taught it. It is not just enough to be holy, to be pure, to live a righteous life. In order to please God, and this is what Isaiah was saying in chapter 10. In order to please God, you've got to reach out and, and, and care for the ones who can't do for themselves. You've got to Seek justice for them. You've got to provide for their needs. You've got to... See, I'm starting to sound like a Democrat, for heaven's sakes. What are you laughing about? Because quite honestly, for 30 years of my life, I believed, and I mean it with all of my heart, I believed, how could anybody be a Christian and register as a Democrat? That's the way I believed. Now, I don't want to get into any politics here. I don't care what you've registered as. But the reality is for me, I am no longer worried about whether I'm Republican or Democrat or progressive or conservative. What I am is a little Christ. And my goal and my heart and my passion is to love God to the point where, A, I keep myself unstained. Not because I don't want to keep from going to hell, but because I love God so much that I want to do anything to bring anything bad on His name. I don't want people to be watching my life and think, well, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Heaven, help me if something somebody says that about me. But that's only half of the equation. The other half is, what are you doing for God's sake for the people who desperately need help? Because you know what, folks? I wasn't going to get political. In the state of Alaska, we have an incredible, incredible crunch financially. Our, our, our state's budget is in a shambles. Why? Because the stinking churches have sat on their butts for 50 years. Instead of us doing our job, the state has had to pick up the slack. 
There wouldn't be people standing in line at Evelyn's office if we would give dollars out of our pockets to meet their needs. If we would put together programs to help the poor, the homeless, the destitute, the mentally ill. And yes, there are churches that do that, but every church needs to do it. Every church needs to, in some form or some fashion, reach out to the poor in their community. How many people do you know in this community that desperately need the love of Christ poured out into their life through physical means? Shoveling the crap out of their dog yard. That is the most disgusting thing I could ever think of. It makes me puke in the back of my throat to think about it. And if God asks me to, I'll do it. Hopefully he won't. Hopefully he'll do it for Tanya. But the reality is, folks, this is, where I'm, this is what I'm seeing as I'm reading this. The God of all gods, the only God that there is or ever was, who is my father, who is my best friend, desires relationship with me. And there's two things he asks of me. Keep your nose clean and love the people around you. That's it. That's what's my responsibility in this relationship. And I spent the better part of my life looking after my own cleanliness, making sure I was not stinky or dirty or stained. And I missed the boat completely for 30 plus years about doing the justice part and the showing mercy part. And I'm not trying to make up for lost time, but I'm telling you the passion is so deep in my heart. And I want so desperately to communicate with you people how deep and important it is. And it's not just our church, it's you. You need to be watching for opportunities even with your next door neighbor. If they don't come out to check their mail for a couple days, you go knock on their door. Find out if they're okay. Bring them a hot meal or just say, come on, I want to bring a cup of coffee and a pot of sugar over to you. Can I come over? Reach out for heaven's sakes and show the love of Christ. Because one of the other things that I've learned over the last couple of weeks, months, is if somebody is in need and I come up to them in Christian love and I say, is there anything I can do for you? No, I'm fine. I'm good. But if I come up to them and say, hey, listen, I know that you've been having a hard time. And so I'm coming over tomorrow afternoon at three and I'm collect up all your dirty laundry and I'm taking it to the laundromat. I'm going to clean it. I'm going to bring it back to you all folded up and ready to go. Just have it ready for me. I'll be here tomorrow at three. Most of the time, they're not going to say no. Because if you will be specific in the way that you will minister to them, they will receive it and say thank you. And then hopefully they'll see Christ in you and give glory to your father. And that's what we're called to do. Love God with all of your heart. I do. With all of your soul. I do. With all of your mind. I do. With all of your strength. Oh, that means I have to do something. I want to do now. I'm 56 years old. I'm fat. I'm breaking down. My body is not going to do what I could have done 30 years ago. But I'll do what I can. And that's why I go driving every single, not every day, but almost every day of the week to the food bank to get food. 
I wish there was more that I could do. I'm looking for opportunities to do. Not because I want to get marks in my little book up in heaven, but because I want to show the love of Christ to my community. I want people to know Jesus loves them by the way that I act. And that's what I see in this passage this morning from Isaiah chapter 10. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. That's just the facts of life. Don't be afraid of it. God's in control. But while it's happening, you still have a responsibility to me in our relationship. And that's you need to love on people. And you need to find ways to reach out through the love of Christ and through the resources that I've given you to minister in my name so that there will be a holy remnant that will keep their eyes focused on me through all of this horror that's going on. And I guarantee you when we get to the end, it will have been worth it. Those are the words that I hear God saying to me to share with you. Let's pray.